Always can't wait to have coffee in the morning. What does coffee do for you? Wakes me up, makes me feel good. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> what happens when you don't get coffee? Oh yeah, I'll let you interview her. Yeah. What happens when I don't get coffee? What happens when you don't get coffee? No one gets fed. Yeah. <laughs> How grumpy do you get? Mean. I get pretty mean. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm like a 20. Does it give you a headache? Yeah. Well, no, it, if I'm going without it for a long period of time, yeah. I have to drink coffee before I leave the house. Yeah, the first thing is in your system is coffee. Yeah. Like, I wake up and I immediately boil water. My mom gave me coffee when I was 13 years old, oh, no. and it was, uh, so I could start getting up extra early in the morning to feed the chickens, and the potbelly pigs, and the ducks, and all the other animals. So it's a way to make yourself more productive. Yeah, well now it's just a way to, like, survive. <laughs> it used to just be for productivity, now it's just so that, like, I can be a human being throughout the day. <laughs> Do you wish it was different? No, I, I like. Yeah. <laughs> right, if you quit coffee, you wouldn't be able to use your French press. Yeah, I like I like having the routine in the morning, which is really comforting. And I like trying different coffees, and I like the way coffee smells. I'm Lily Sloan, and this is A Therapist Walks Into a Bar, a podcast that brings therapy to you. Somewhat appropriately for this episode, I asked people about their substance use. I've heard some pretty amazing and vulnerable stuff from total strangers, but asking a person with a drink in their hand about their drinking habits, well, that kind of gets people's guards up, and that's pretty understandable. With the way we either demonize or glorify substance use in U.S. culture, it's no wonder folks would be a little wary of talking to a therapist about it. Am I going to judge? Am I going to label everyone around me an alcoholic? Thankfully, we also have an expert to help us dig through this mucky territory that can have some of us running for the hills or the bottom. Introduce yourself. Hi, Lily. Um, so my name is Cynthia Hoffman, and I am a marriage family therapist here in San Francisco. Um, I have a private practice um, for about... 15 years I've been working in private practice and also in uh, community settings and I generally have worked with uh, substance users uh, and those with co-occurring disorders so people that have some mental health issues and some substance use issues. In my private practice I run harm reduction therapy groups for people who are trying to change the way that they drink and use. I also see individuals and couples uh, with those issues. Yeah, I've been working from a harm reduction perspective since the beginning, since I graduated. Um, what else you want to know? I kind of want to know everything about Cynthia, including details from her teenage diaries, but this will do for now. So what is this harm reduction thing? Well, it's an approach to drug and alcohol use that offers an alternative to the current standard. 12-step abstinence-based programs. Harm reduction's roots are in programs like needle exchanges, which come from an acceptance that drug use isn't likely to be eliminated. So how can we make sure people have access to clean needles so infections like HIV aren't spread as a result? 
So if we think about harm reduction in general, uh, one of the things that the Harm Reduction Coalition likes to cite is the idea that um, safety belts in cars are a form of harm reduction um, because cars are dangerous, but we don't want to stop driving cars. So what we do is we use safety belts to minimize any harm that might come from a crash. So if you take this principle and you apply it to substance use, what we want to do is we want to get a realistic view of what people are doing, the substances that they're using, the behaviors that they have, and try to help reduce any harm. So it's, it's what it says it is. Harm reduction therapy is about working with substance users to try and help them either manage or abstain from drug and alcohol use. And it's also helping uh, folks look at why they use what they use. What is the purpose of their use? What, it, what are they trying to uh, achieve? Harm reduction accepts that drug use is a multifaceted experience and cites evidence that the old attitude of blaming one's moral failings and the more current mentality of claiming drug addiction as a biological disease with only abstinence and a lifelong proclamation that one is an addict as a valid treatment are both scientifically flawed, limiting, and, while they work for some, are not particularly successful approaches. I get a lot of clients that have done 12-step and have just, they it didn't fit with them. It didn't work for them. And so, uh, and then the idea of abstinence from, so, so some people want to be abstinent from alcohol, but they don't want to be abstinent from cannabis, or they don't want to be abstinent from the occasional cocaine use. In 12-step, that's not okay. Um, and so people are looking for an alternative. People are looking for a way to to be able to do what they want to do and try to manage what they want to manage. And that's kind of tough when we're used to hearing messages like this. And when we're told that wanting to find a way to use moderation is just a form of denial, a word that carries loads of judgment and stigma. We're used to the approaches of reality shows like Intervention or listening to Dr. Phil deliver a healthy dose of tough love. If... If you got in touch with me and you said, Dr. Phil, I have some legitimate questions that I want to talk about. I am through being defensive. I'm through being in denial. I'm through saying what I want things to be instead of what they are. And if you don't, we don't really have anything left to talk about, do we? I was a D.A.R.E. kid. I don't just say that because the D.A.R.E. program, Drug Abuse Resistance Education, came to my school in the 90s. Unlike many of the kids who made jokes and goofed off, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I took it pretty seriously. When I was 12 and I realized my older brother was smoking and drinking like a lot of other 16-year-olds, I was terrified of what would happen to him. Over many years, I've been trying to untangle my black and white thinking about drugs and alcohol from their gray reality. At first glance, it's surprising that I became a harm reduction-oriented therapist, coming from some rigid views and deeply seated anxiety. But I think I've chosen this path because it feels like the courageous path for me, with that scared 12-year-old still inside. 
How can I find patience and compassion for myself and others when I feel so afraid? How can I maintain an open mind and meet people exactly where they are? How can I sit with discomfort? When we're scared, we want to bring the hammer down. But harm reduction challenges us to do the opposite. The way substance use is often portrayed in our culture is extreme. Either you're an addict or you're not. But in reality, we do all kinds of things, including use substances to deal with feelings. Maybe to feel less of something or to feel more of something. That's kind of what they're for. Here are some of the reasons the strangers I spoke with said they use their substances. Uh, well, for me, so alcohol and marijuana is, is a way to, like, a social lubricant or something, and, uh, you know, just like, a way to relax a bit. Like, I, don't, I don't rely on it for, to have fun. It's just an, it's an addition. Uh-huh. So when you drink the right amount for you, what happens? I get horny. I get... <laughs> I want, I want to take off my clothes. <laughs> I get really flirty. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to see that side of me. <laughs> I have I have one drink and I feel like warm and fuzzy. And usually after two drinks I feel gross. It's usually get rid of social anxiety. Yeah. What about pot? I know you smoke pot. Which what's what's that for? That's for everything. <laughs> that's for. Have you ever just like thought about the way that the world works and be like, wow, that's terrible. I'm so sick and tired of the universe. And then you have some pot. And that, that helps you cope with how. Actually takes me out of my normal uh, living. Like drunken people, they tell the truth. So when you're around of people, a lot of drunk people, you hear a lot of truths. That's what I feel like, and it's it's funny because like when I drink with my people, like with my friends especially, like I find out things that I never heard before. Uh, a slight high in the. The confidence to socialize that much better with people I don't know or don't know well. Because uh, it makes you it makes you relaxed. Uh, it tastes good. It's uh, I'm bored, and what else am I gonna do? I've done work. I did something creative. I this will help me go to bed. I'll fall asleep in an hour. talks about how we use occurring in a range of categories from abstinence to occasional to heavy to dependent or chaotic use and tons of stuff in between but no matter where on that spectrum you lie from day to day chances are your use is about helping you feel something you want to feel or helping you push away some feelings that you don't want to be having 
And the more we're struggling in our lives from emotional to physical pain and stress, the more we might find ourselves turning to our drugs of choice in order to cope. And if it's not a chemical substance, it might be gambling, Facebook, ice cream, intensive exercise, or just about anything under the sun. I can tell you for the groups that I run, um, a lot of folks come in with social anxiety. Um, they come in with past trauma that they don't know how to handle. They don't even, might not even know that it's trauma until we get talking and we start realizing it. Anxiety uh, is a huge one. So it could be social anxiety. It could be anxiety about your future or anxiety about the career that you're in or family life issues that are going on. Um, depression is another one that people medicate. So if people are feeling down, if people are feeling hopeless, um, those are pretty difficult feelings to to have. And so, you know, substances can help with those feelings. And then sometimes it can go too much. There are so many factors that determine whether or not use of a particular substance is or might become problematic for you. In 1984, Dr. Norman Zimberg published his book, Drugs, Set, and Setting, The Basis for Controlled Intoxicant Use. In it, Zimberg explains how our experience of using a particular substance or intoxicant is directly related to three factors, the properties of the drug itself, drug, the mindset of the user, which he called set, and the environment in which this drug is used, which he called setting. If one or two of these categories is off, the experience is potentially harmful. For instance, perhaps smoking weed is a positive experience for you, but you try a different strain and your usual relaxed high turns to paranoia. Or as this woman I spoke with at the bar demonstrates, each drug has its different effect on her when she uses alone. It's like I'll be watching it, friend, friends, and I'll be laughing my ass off when I'm on marijuana. <laughs> But I'll be just feeling so sad when I'm on alcohol, feeling like I don't have friends like this. I don't have friends that I can talk to every day. You know, it's a different story. So then Zimberg talks about something he calls set, which really just means mindset. So maybe you just got laid off from your job and you're really angry and hurt, so you go out drinking. This is a really different mindset than drinking for a celebration. I spoke to a man who lives alone in a rural area, and he finds himself using alcohol when he's by himself in a range of mental and emotional states. Well, when you drink alone, each day it's a, it's a different reason. It's either like, sometimes it'll be like, oh, this beer or this wine will pair well with what I'm eating. So I'm trying to be sophisticated. <laughs> trying. Uh, other times I'm... Like, it's just a relaxation. Like, it was a hard day at work. I get to be in a completely different space. And then, uh, sometimes I'm just, like, bored. Okay, so maybe you're using psychedelics with strangers, and you're not sure they're trustworthy. Or you're getting high while you're traveling and you don't speak the language. So now we're talking about setting. Where and when are you using? Also, 
When we think about setting in a cultural context, the messages we've received about drug use and the legality of the drug are all a part of the environment in which use is happening. For a particularly shadowy perspective on how the cultural setting of using certain substances impacts us, here's Dr. Julie Holland, a psychiatrist and drug policy activist. You know, the way our drug policy is set up now, um, it's basically turning us into addicts. We have to hide, we have to lie, we can't be honest and open about our own use. We can't teach other people what we've learned about our use. Um, all the hiding and the shame and the lying and the secrecy so that we don't get caught adds this whole layer of adrenaline onto it, which actually sort of increases the drug-like experience. It, it makes it more addictive. Uh, it, it fetishizes it. like a prudent time to be talking about how drug policy in the U.S. affects our attitudes about our own use. Because just last week, a 22-year-old previously unpublished interview with Nixon's former domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman, was finally released. In it, he admits, quote, We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did." End quote. So the narrative of the dangers of drugs, not to say they're not dangerous at all, but the particular intensity around this narrative that's been around for so long and that I was very, very pulled into as a young child and still have trouble untangling myself from, it wasn't even about the drugs. Dr. Holland and many others advocate that legalizing or at least decriminalizing the use of many substances will decrease the harm of such drugs and make more room for open, honest conversation that will lead to safer, more responsible drug use. Harm reduction therapy aims to do this with the individual. Organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance aim to do this in a larger socio-political sphere. Harm reduction therapy uses something called the stages of change to look at where a person is in their process. We're in pre-contemplation when we aren't really thinking about our substance use or whatever habit, and we don't have any inclination of wanting it to change. We're in contemplation when we start to think, maybe there's something here I want to look at. It's, it can be helpful to say, are you worried about your substance use? Are, because being worried about your substance use is the first, first step to working on it. There's really nothing to work on if you don't see a problem. And figuring that out is up to you, 
not anyone else. So if you have decided you want to work on it, the next stage is preparation, which is when you start establishing a plan to address what you've determined you want to change. Cynthia talks here about how this preparation stage might look with someone who wants to be abstinent from alcohol. What are the resources that you need to be able to quit? And if you think about this in terms of stages of change, there's, there's a, a sort of way that people change. Uh, and one way is they think about, hmm, I want to change. And then they prepare for change. It's not just jumping right into it. Okay, so if I'm going to be abstinent, what do I need to be abstinent? What, what kind of routine do I need to have in my life? What kind of support do I need to have in my life? What kind of habits do I need to change in order to be absent? If you come home and you pour yourself a glass of wine and you decide that you don't want to pour yourself a glass of wine until Friday night, then you got to figure out something to do between 5 and 7. So in the preparation stage, you're just trying to figure out how you want to implement change. You're coming up with a plan because just do it is not an effective agent of change. Sorry, Nike. So after all of that, then you move into action. You start implementing that plan. You see how it goes. You try it out. You experiment. From the action stage comes maintenance, which is kind of grueling. It's like action extended. You keep working it, fine-tuning, exploring, learning. And mixed in there, and some harm reduction therapists are reluctant to use this term because of all the stigma attached, but is relapse, which is really natural. It's simply a process that can occur at any time when our expectations were perhaps unrealistic or stressors arise when all our hard work isn't yet solidified. If you believe relapse means you'll have to hit bottom to come out again, then it might actually go that way. But in an environment of forgiveness, when we and our support system are able to not catastrophize, relapse can occur on a continuum like anything else. And it can be in a very important part of the process. Each time we slide back into behaviors, there's more to learn about why we use and what we might need to help us use in a way that feels okay. One of the things that I talk about a lot is just, you know, how do you give yourself a break? How do you just give yourself a break and say, yes, I did that. I did it. It's not something I want to do again or not something I want to do regularly. Um, But I did it and... If I realize that if I feel shame or guilt about what I did, that I'm not going to move forward. Because shame and guilt is going to keep me in this sort of spiral. At a certain point of working and reworking the issue, we may find ourselves being truly over it. Some of us will rotate through the stages throughout our lives. Like most things, the process isn't really linear, and our ambivalence about change is likely to be along for the ride. A central tool for working through these stages is called motivational interviewing. This process is all about exploring ambivalence. Instead of focusing solely on everything that's bad about this terrible thing you're doing, 
What about why you're doing it? What do you get out of it? Or maybe what did you once get out of it? Because if you had no attachment, if you weren't feeling any ambivalence at all, you'd probably be able to change it, right? Uh, you know, a, a popular saying in 12-step is take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. And so what that's saying to people is you don't have a right to say anything and you just need to listen to what I have to tell you. And I come from a place where I believe that people are experts of their own lives and their own consciousness. And as therapists, we help them navigate through that. But I'm not in charge of that. And it's not, it's not up to me to tell them where they're going wrong. Remember at the beginning of the episode when I talked to the woman about her coffee habit? Oh, I can't wait to have coffee in the morning. I asked her, Why? what does coffee what do, do for you? For you? And do you want it to change? I came from a place of curiosity, not from an assumption that her coffee consumption was bad and should be confronted. I mean, if I drank that much coffee, it would literally kill me, but it's not about me. It's about her. Believe it or not, I would do the same thing if someone told me they were using heroin. I would have to put my own anxieties and dare indoctrination aside to do it. But pushing someone to change, especially when neither of us fully understands their context of their use, is rarely effective or useful. In fact, it often backfires. One man I interviewed at the bar who was worried about his friend's drinking did this. I tried to take away his bottle and drink it down the, the, the toilet. And I was just, when I read about it afterwards, it said, number one, don't take people, don't take their bottles and don't drink it down the toilet. <laughs> so tempting, right? Yes. His anxiety led him to try to bring the hammer down, to intervene, to make a change for his friend. But this wasn't the wake-up call he thought it would be. His friend probably knew already that he was drinking too much and didn't yet have the ability, desire, resources to change it. And this was not the satisfying friendship experience he had been hoping for. If you're using alcohol to get a little respite from your high-pressure job, perfectionism, an intense inner critic, beating yourself up for drinking or getting hounded for drinking by someone else likely just adds to the feelings that you drink to cope with in the first place. Um, Because as I tell people almost every day, what is the perfect uh, uh, remedy for shame and guilt? Additional substance use. Right? It makes those feelings go away. And right there, whatever problematic cycle you might be in with your substance ensues. And so if we can figure out how to not shame ourselves, how, how a person cannot guilt their self, then their, their need for substance use is going to lower. So how do we break this cycle? Harm reduction says inquiry, inquiry, and more inquiry, getting really clear that you are benefiting from your substance, or at least at one time you did, and asking yourself what you need that this substance is helping you out with, without added judgment, and then deciding from there if you still want it to change. When you're more aware, you can start making conscious choices that come from within you, to experiment with incremental changes aimed at removing the most harmful aspects of your use from the equation. You're using for a reason, and if you take your coping tool, 
your friend away. You need other things in place to support you because likely you'll be turning towards the things that are scary and painful for you, like trauma, stress, social anxiety, and overwhelm. Absolutely. And we, we have to give clients that are changing their patterns of use space to grieve their friend. You know, something that's been there for them maybe and has been consistent for them in so many ways, but now is kind of maybe not working in, in other ways. I asked Cynthia, what's the point of gaining awareness around our substance use? What's the point of getting in touch with difficult feelings? What she shared is something that I think connects to the purpose of therapy as a whole. Well, the hope is that you, you get to experience all of your feelings. Because here's the thing. If you tamp down one feeling, you're going to tamp down three that you don't want to tamp down. So it's important to experience all of your feelings, even if just a little bit, even if you just let them in a little bit, because that's the whole of the human experience, right, is all of our feelings. So it's about learning how to deal with all of your feelings and see how what you're feeling drives you, like how your feelings are connected to your behavior. If you have suppressed feelings of anger towards your boss, it's going to come out in little ways that could be detrimental to your career. So you have to be able to identify what they are and see, okay, what is the best way that I can deal with this? Rather than saying, it's not there, it's not there, it's not there, and then pow, you walk out. develop ways of containing emotional experiences that feel like too much for us. And that's okay, that's human. But what awareness does is allows us the ability to choose how we want to respond. When do you challenge yourself to stay in something that feels shitty because it's an unavoidable aspect of life? And when do you decide to give yourself a break? When do you find your life is enhanced by your substances? And when do you want to be able to access certain feelings without the hangover? And what if you didn't have to judge yourself either way? Thank you for listening to episode three of A Therapist Walks Into a Bar. The show is going to take a two-month break to regroup and get future episodes going. Of course, I hope to stay connected with you all through social media in the meantime. Thank you so much to Cynthia Hoffman for offering her expertise in harm reduction therapy. And thank you to the Drug Policy Alliance and Dr. Julie Holland for use of her talk. Thank you to the brave strangers at Zeitgeist, Blackthorn Tavern, and Club 1778 for getting real with me. The theme song is by Topher M. Lewis, and this episode also features music by Jewel St. Julian from his new EP, Every Rise, available in iTunes, Bandcamp, and on Spotify. You're also hearing Feelings, performed by the lovely Nina Pine and myself. It's not available on the internet, and it never will be. 
Links to artists and experts, along with lots of harm reduction-related resources, are available at a atatherapistwalksintoabar.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter. And hey, if you like the show, help me get more listeners by leaving a review in iTunes and sharing with everybody you know. And there's an attachment, both, it sounds like some physiological. It's not, it's biological. Physiological. 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 Physiological.